Usually, I focus on figures who wrote down their ideas for future generations. But today, I'm kind of going against my own grain and covering an author who did not extensively express herself through writings, but instead, through action. Mary Dyer was an English woman turned colonial American, who escaped the religious persecution of England only to re-encounter it in colonial America again. Mary Dyer would pay a high price for her convictions, but thanks to brave people like her, who carved a path for religious freedom that is now thankfully a fundamental right in America today. Joining us today to talk about Mary Dyer is my lovely colleague and fellow Paul, Paul Matsko, the editor of Technology and Innovation for Libertarianism.org and the host of the podcast Building Tomorrow, which you should definitely listen to. He is also the author of The Radio Right, How a Band of Broadcasters Took on the Federal Government and Built the Modern Conservative Movement. Thanks for joining us, Paul. It's a pleasure to be with you, Paul. So Mary was born sometime around 1611. Can you describe what kind of world she was born into and how the 17th century was a drastically different time? And can you roughly describe what was the religious and political orthodoxy of the day? Yeah, so there's there's a habit, I think, among Americans to to frame everything in, in relationship to the American Revolution. And so when you think about the late 18th century and the 1770s and 1780s, um, the distance between that, the kind of felt cultural difference between then and today is arguably less than the distance between that moment and the early 17th century, a century and a half before that. In a lot of ways, 17th century Europe is a very different place uh, than you know the founding of America, the revolutionary period, and especially today. So it's a time when all these kind of things that we, we associate with modernity, like liberalism, the enlightenment, um, uh, individual civil liberties, religious toleration and freedom, separation of church and state, all those things that we kind of take for granted now and which were pretty well ensconced by the late 18th century are just kind of in, in vitro. They're just being formulated in the early 17th century in, in crucial ways. So it's, it's as much pre-modern as this modern. And so for someone like Mary Dyer, who is a, a Puritan in England, she later becomes a Quaker. Um, the idea that like her religious beliefs um, would be tolerated what was it was alien at the time uh, countries had an uh, usually had a state religion whether it was catholic or some variety of protestant and anyone who wasn't part of that religion would not be tolerated they could be persecuted for their faith they faced um they weren't allowed to vote typically they fa- they couldn't hold political office she's a woman of course and so at the time that meant she didn't have the the same kind of civic rights um as a man she couldn't vote and and hold political office and the like um and so she uh, really is in this pre-modern space that looks quite different. Um, uh, and, and, and she's having to fight for stuff that we now take for granted. Uh, so, so yeah, I think – think about the, this, this time period even though it feels kind of familiar. You know, she's an English woman in New England in the colonies. Uh, I, I want to emphasize just how different um, her culture and society and politics were uh, versus today. So you mentioned the word Puritan. Uh, whenever I think of the word Puritan, I think of it kind of like an insult. If you don't want to have a few drinks with a mate, they say, ah, come on, stop. You're being such a Puritan. Or, you know, the town in Footloose is like exactly what I think of a Puritans. But what exactly did it mean to be a Puritan back then? Was it just an insult or is it more of a religious ideology? And how did it differ? Why did the Puritans get into so much trouble? Seemingly, 
when you read about the 17th century, it, it, the Puritans are in trouble with nearly everyone. Yeah. What do they believe in exactly? And why was it so controversial? Yeah. So one of the fun things about Puritanism is that we remember it through several layers of reinterpretation. And in that sense, um, can be traced back to folks like Nathaniel Hawthorne, the 19th century author who wrote the Scarlet Letter. You know, Puritans are like, boo, sex, boo, women, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, or H.L. Mencken, the uh, 20th century wit who wrote that puritanism is quote the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy so we have this idea of puritanism as just like dour wearing you know like pilgrim outfits which is funny because pilgrims and puritans are two completely different groups um religious groups but we we kind of imagine puritans wearing like pilgrim buckles and the big black hats and which isn't what they wore. They loved colors. They loved music. They loved art. They were very much integrated in the transatlantic uh, Republic of Letters. Um, they were cultured, educated. Uh, for for example, Henry Vane, who was the Massachusetts governor right before – in the generation before Mary Dyer's death, so during Mary Dyer's early years in the colonies – uh, he was Oxford educated. He was an English diplomat in Vienna before he came to the colonies. He was one of the first people to call for a constitutional convention for England uh, during the you know the struggles, uh, pre-Civil War struggles in England. Um, supported Anne Hutchison on questions of religious toleration. So, like these were very um, cultured, educated uh, folks. Uh, it's just later on. Uh, centuries later that we reinterpret the Puritans as these kind of dour folks. Now, what they believed, uh, they believed that the Anglican church, the church of England um, was too Catholic. It was like Catholic light in their minds. And that was corrupted by its entanglement with the British crown. You know, you think of like, you know, Henry, the Henry, the eighth executing all those wives and divorcing them and all the shenanigans he could get up to because he made himself head of the church. And so he could just kind of willy nilly break marriage vows, Um, that kind of stuff, uh, not just by him, but uh, they saw kind of a corrupting influence in the Anglican church. And so they were trying to purify the theology and practice of the Anglican church. This gets necessarily tangled with politics because church and state are not separated. They're, they're, you know, they're joined, they're conjoined and established at this time. And um, so during uh, the reign of James the first there's 1620s, there's a big knockdown drag out political fight over the rights of parliament uh, the the whether or not the king has the divine right of kings, uh, this has religious connotations as well, and so the Puritans are very much involved in that political struggle between is this country going to be a limited monarchy, a constitutionally limited monarchy, or is it going to be an absolute monarchy uh, in like the French model? They get tied up in that. They also want the church, which is headed by the king, to be reformed. So they're kind of pushed out they 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 to some extent they flee to the colonies so that they can they can build a new england very literally a new england that's free from the corruption as john winthrop the famous one of the famous governors of uh, the massachusetts bay colony puts it we're going to build a city on the hill and show the world this is what uh, a a good pure church and a, a well-constructed state should look like. And then everyone will want to imitate us because we're, you know, we did such a good job of it. So there's kind of this utopian vision that, that propels them to cross the ocean in the 1620s and thirties. So the Puritans wanted to lead by example 
And Mary eventually goes over to America. What year about does she go over? What age was she roughly? It's, uh, I can't remember what, it's, it's in the early 1630s. She's in her 20s. Um, and, and she arrives there at a time of, so Puritans, most of them arrive in the 1620s. The first kind of wave get there in the 1620s. More keep coming in the 1630s. They establish this, you know, Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, and very quickly they fall into their own set of controversies, political and religious controversies. Uh, it's called the antinomian controversy of the 1630s. Antinomian just means, uh, anti-law against law. Um, it's not a word that anybody who was called an antinomian ever described themselves with. It was an epithet given to them. Um, in the same way, I suppose, that capitalist was originally an epithet that eventually got embraced uh, in the 19th century. But during this antinomian controversy, there were people like Mary Dyer. She was part of this faction, like Anne Hutchison, probably the most famous uh, female dissenter in the Massachusetts Bay Colony at the time, like Roger Williams, um, who goes and founds Rhode Island and really coins the concept of the wall of separation between church and state. Um, this faction said, look. Uh, Now, again, you can't think about the 1630s without thinking about how religion and politics are entangled. Everything's religious and everything's political. There is no separation between the two like like we kind of have today in our secular, secularized society where we compartmentalize these things off from each other. And so in Massachusetts, right, they're building this perfect Christian utopian city on a hill. Uh, There is an official church. There's the you know, Puritan church, uh, that controls, um, that they're, they're, you have to pay parish taxes to the state, which are funneled to the church. Uh, you have to be a member of a church to vote. So voting and church membership are tied to each other. They do have universal male suffrage about nearly twice as many people in the colonies, men, I should say in the colonies can vote relative to England, but again, it's tied to church membership and the like. And so along come the antinomians who will we'll call for lack of a better term. And they say, Hey, you're trying to force people to be saved, to be righteous. You're trying to use the power of the state to compel people to behave better. Um, this is rooted in Protestant ideas about, um, uh, redemption and salvation. How do you become a better person in this life? Uh, you, well, the Puritan said you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You need to really like work on yourself. Um, you need to figure out, keep a, keep a little journal, keep a journal where you note, um, uh, how you're doing in terms of your, your personal sinning, right? Like, uh, I lied today check. In fact, th- this tradition continues on to, if you ever read the autobiography of Ben Franklin um, or the biography of Ben Franklin, he kept a little struggle journal where he'd like every day, like put little check marks. I lied today. I, you know, cheated today, etc. Right. Um, you need to work on your salvation, prepare yourself for salvation so that, you know, God's grace would descend on you and you'd be saved. Well, the antinomian said, puh, you complained about the Anglicans being Catholic light. That sounds Catholic light to me, like working on your salvation. Salvation is supposed to be a gift of God. So, you know, you should not use then state power to compel people not to do wrong because you're not actually affecting their hearts. You're just affecting their behavior. And that's not what true religion is. And so someone like Roger Williams would say that, um, 
Let's see how Roger Williams put it. Forced worship or forced good behavior, quote, stinks in God's nostrils. So that's what they say. When they say they're antinomian against law, they're saying um, you sh- you cannot compel righteousness using the power of the state. And, well, that's a huge challenge to the Massachusetts Bay authorities who their their whole system is predicated on the state trying to compel individual righteousness using laws against everything from infidelity to lying to swearing, you know, cursing, um, and so on. And so this theological difference becomes a political conflict. And Mary Dyer is caught up in that political conflict. Um, and it has, you know, huge ramifications both for her personally and for the history of religious toleration. So how did she – come to these ideas, who was exactly saying them to her? Did she join a different kind of church? And then also, how did these ideas get her into trouble eventually? Yeah, so Dyer is um, a close personal friend of uh, Anne Hutchison, who is uh, another uh, woman in the Massachusetts colony. She's actually a midwife. She helps bear Mary Dyer's child, which was known at the time as Mary Dyer's monstrous birth, which we can talk about in a second. So she's very heavily influenced by Hutchison. Hutchison is controversial. She gets banished from the colonies um, because she would, she, again, she's tied to this faction of antinomians who are saying you can't use the law to compel people to be good. That's that's not what the law should be for. That's inappropriate. Um, like, you know, Roger Williams, Henry Vane, and others. And then Hutchison goes a step further, and she's holding meetings in her house, first with just women, but then also with men, where they kind of dissect the weekly sermons in church and talk about what they mean. So she's doing something that looks kind of like preaching. She's built a, uh, a community around uh, faith and politics, and again, that's a huge challenge to the Massachusetts Bay authorities, and so they expel her. They banish her from the colony. Um, so that is Dyer, like Dyer's close personal acquaintance. She's part of that assembly. So she gets a lot of her ideas from Hutchison, um, from from Williams, from Vane, from that kind of antinomian community, uh, who are themselves rooted. You maybe picked this up when I mentioned Vane, Henry Vane, but. All of these guys, all these folks have a tie to the the radical Republicans, 17th century English Republicans, who were saying that the uh, power of the king and ultimately the power of the state should be somehow limited, that there should be limits set and there should be limits set and codified in the constitution that outlines individual rights for people. So it's, it's, uh, derived. So Mary Dyer's beliefs are derived from English republicanism in opposition to, uh, monarchical absolutism and from this kind of religious movement, this antinomian religious movement. Um, it gets her in trouble. So there's this big controversy, you know, people are being banished. Uh, Anne Hutchison gets banished. Roger Williams gets banished. People are being executed for their beliefs. People are having their tongues drilled through, their ears shaved off. This is some like really bloody, violent stuff going on here. Real repression in the 1630s in Massachusetts. And in the middle of this, Mary, who's I think at this time about like 26 years old, she gives birth. And the problem is that the baby, when it comes out, like today we know it probably had encephaly. You know, it didn't really have a brain that formed um, and it had obvious physical deformities. Again, this is a pre-modern period. And in a pre-modern time, you know, it, it's still an enchanted world. 
um, where people think of magic being everywhere. There's kind of folk magic, folk traditions. Uh, and so it was still very common. In, in 1630s, this is 60 years before the Salem witchcraft trials, right? So this is before that, which was kind of maybe the last gasp in some ways of pre-modern understandings of, of um, enchantment, magic, and the natural world. Uh, so this is before that. And so when you give birth to a deformed child, it was taken as like either it was God's judgment on you or, you know, for something you'd done or believed that was wrong or, you know, some kind of curse had been placed. In general, it um, was something that could be used against Mary Dyer and against the movement she was part of. And so she had this – and Anne Hutchison was her midwife. So everyone's kind of tied up in this. She has this what was called a monstrous birth by her opponents. They try to secretly bury the child. Word gets out. And the other faction, the anti-antinomian faction, led by folks like John Winthrop, the city on the hill guy, uh, they, they, they find this out. And they actually lean on uh, Mary Dyer's friend. They say, tell us about this. We've gotten word about this. Confess that she had, you know, help us find the body. They exhume her dead, deformed child. Um, they examine it. They then write up a pamphlet describing all of the physical deformities in great detail. Uh, label it the monstrous birth, mail copies to all the clergymen in the colony and encourage them to read it to their congregations to show that this is why the antinomians, God's judgment on the antinomians. So you should listen to us, the political and religious authorities. So like put yourself in the shoes of Mary Dyer. Like think about traumatizing that would be to, to first of all, have a stillborn baby and then to have it, your, your friend turn on you, have it dug up, described, made a public political talking point. Um, that that's our kind of first big, you know, uh, introduction to, to Mary Dyer, um, and her monstrous birth. It's, it's something really sad about the Puritans is that they, they went to America for freedom from religious persecution and then they just had their own round of religious persecution. And it's such a sad story because it seems all too common that people love freedom for everyone but them. Like, they want freedom for themselves and people like them. But once you're a little bit different, kind of people start to go away from it. And maybe the state's not so bad. So it's a really depressing story. But And there's, I think, an interesting point there uh, that's related to what you're saying, Paul, which is that, um, you know, religious freedom... <sighs> Well, first of all, no, everyone involved is a Puritan at this point. Anne Hutchison, Mary Dyer, John Winthrop. This is all kind of an intra-Puritan fight over what Puritanism should look like, if it should change, if it should further reform, if it should itself should be purified. Um, so it's, you know, it's not like Puritans versus these sympathetic non-Puritans. They're really kind of all Puritans in this moment. But that you're right, though, that there is something, um, there's a kind of core almost hypocrisy here that the antinomian faction is picking up on and saying, hey, look, our movement is supposed to differentiate itself from Catholicism by not by allowing kind of individual soul liberty to use Roger Williams phrase. And Roger Williams is really the first person to use liberty in the modern sense that we use today, um, as opposed to the older sense, which was the freedom to do what you should do, which, you know, very different from how we think about it. Um, but they said, look, we're not going far enough. You're just replacing the Catholic Church and its entanglement with the state with a Puritan church and entanglement with the state. You need to go further. Um, 
And in the long run, they win. They, I mean, American Protestants, Christians in general, look much more like the antinomians, like Hutchison, uh, Dyer, Williams, than they do the Puritan. They're you know kind of the other side in this faction. So in the long run, this vision, Mary Dyer's vision, Hutchison's vision, that's what predominates um, in American Christianity. So they lose in the short term, but they win in the long term. And I think that's important because. When we talk about religious liberty and freedom, we take it for granted like it's a thing that's just always kind of existed and every now and again it gets impinged upon and then, you know, and then it it comes back. But like religious liberty had to be invented, had to be created, fought for, struggled over. And first, it wasn't religious liberty. It was religious toleration. Um, And so it's in this period – and that's a very different thing – Liberty mean it has kind of a positive connotation, let people do what they will, and that's a good thing. Toleration, rooted in the kind of Latin, um, I don't speak Latin, but tolerare means to endure, to bear, to suffer, has this idea of like you've been a big burden's been put on your back and you're being whipped to carry it. Um, and it's a thing, you know, so toleration is like, okay, I'll tolerate you. Um, but that was a big step. And it, and it, it's very important. This is this moment of transition when prior to the 17th century, the default was if someone was different from you religiously, there's no toleration, no freedom, no liberty. They just don't belong. You burn them at the stake like Calvin did to Servetus in Geneva a century before. You, you know, you burn them at the stake like Catholics did Protestants. And you, you know, it's um, there is no toleration at all. Prior to this, this is the century when we really start forming this idea that just because someone's different than you in terms of their religion doesn't mean you should persecute them for that. You can put up with them. You can tolerate them and work together for some bigger purpose or goal. And that has to be invented. And this is the moment. It's the actions of people like Dyer and literally their kind of blood. Dyer's going to die over this uh, in a few decades. It's their blood that builds and cements this concept of religious toleration. So we talk about the long term and how America is much better now, but let's focus on a little bit on the short term. How exactly did she get into so much trouble with the authorities and become the martyr that she is today? Yeah. So after the monstrous birth, as you can imagine, she's, uh, you know, alienated from the colonial authorities at this point, she leaves and goes back to England. Again, think of her as a traumatized woman. What would you do in that situation? She's traumatized. Um, She goes back to England where she becomes a Quaker, uh, which is another kind of radical group, not tolerated by the Puritans. Puritans hated Quakers. Quakers said that um, not only, you know, should the, the, should uh, the uh, the religious authorities not force people to try to force them to be righteous and good, uh, but that the source of one's uh, religious sentiment, their beliefs, their impulses, wasn't to be found in external authorities like the church and like obviously the Catholic Church or the church authorities, or even in the Bible itself per se, but in one's own inner light. They're the little still small voice inside them. That is what told you tells you what is right and wrong and how you should behave. And so um, you can kind of understand why someone who went through what Mary Dyer went through would find that very attractive when both you know authorities quoted scripture and verse at her while um, exhuming her dead child, right, and using it as a political tool. So she becomes a Quaker, and Quaker Quakers were very evangelistic at this point in time. They would go and and 
essentially force authorities to persecute them to highlight how hip- hypocritical the authorities were. And so Dyer, 30 years later, um, this is now the 1660s, she returns to Massachusetts. They tell her to get out. They try to banish her, but she keeps coming back. And ultimately, their laws, they passed a series of laws that stipulated that if Quakers you know, wouldn't leave when they were banished, they had to be executed. And she puts that to the test. Um she refuses to leave. She says, look, you know, I'm not going to leave. I feel p- compelled to, to, you know, be here. Uh, it's not, this is an unjust law and I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you kill me to illustrate just how unjust this law is. And, um, and so after, you know, a bunch of legal wranglings, they send her to be hanged. Um, and there's this, just this great scene. I mean, Mary, Mary Dyer's badass. First of all, someone who believes something that sincerely, um, and is willing to die for a cause. I mean, there's something to be admired there, just in that mere fact. But her behavior in this moment. So think of this this woman who 30 years before has been traumatized by these male authorities. Now they're, they're going to kill her. And she just confidently responds to them at every point saying, you know, um, this sole woman, you can almost imagine in a movie, she'd be in a you know spotlight standing there in the middle of a courtroom while a male, you know, male judge condemns her to death. Um, but as she's going to the gallows, she, she's just watched two of her friends be hung in front of her to her fellow Quakers. As she ascends the gallows for her turn to be hanged, uh, her former pastor, uh, the guy who was supposed to be, uh, uh, looking out for her 30 years before her former pastor calls on her to repent. And if she does so, she'll be spared execution to which she replies like a badass. Nay, man, I am not now to repent. And then she's asked if she wants the church elders or pastors assembled in the crowd watching on to pray for her soul, you know, before she is hung. And she replies, quote, I know never an elder here. Like, you know, it's a, it's a big middle finger to the crowd. Like you call yourselves elders and pastors. I know never an elder so here. What she was doing was. Massachusetts, they had these laws. They said, if you're going to come here with these beliefs, we're going to kill you. And she put them to the test. She made them go through with the logic of how ridiculous their laws were. I think that's, you know, obviously she's back in the 1600s. She's a Puritan. She's not a libertarian whatsoever. But there's something I think all libertarians could admire of a person standing up to the state and saying, no, this is completely ridiculous. Do it. Actually implement your laws the way you want them and see how they look because they're brutal and they're barbaric and they all come out of the barrel of a gun. Like that, you're right. She is a complete badass. Yeah, well, and it's and, and really the Quakers, in a sense, what they're doing is they're throwing their bodies into the gears of the state at the time. And like the state wants to function smoothly. A, a lot of these laws, they didn't want to actually execute Quakers. They just wanted to scare Quakers into staying silent and complying. Right. It was. Uh, the, they actually the the authorities tried to find an out. Like they they gave her multiple opportunities. Like if you just say you're kind of sorry, we won't kill you. There was actually an offer at the very end that like okay, you don't have to say you're sorry. This is like minutes before execution. You don't even have to say you're sorry if you just leave the colony now and promise, you know, and don't say anything on your way out. We won't kill you. We really don't want to kill you. Don't make us kill you. And she, you know, saw through their bluff in, in that sense. So. And she's not the only one. So all there's a whole wave of Quakers, both in Massachusetts and in 
uh, England at this time who really are jamming up the gears and cogs of the machinery of the state with their bodies, very literally. And it has an effect. So after Dyer is killed, everyone feels bad about it. It's 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 not even popular among the Puritan uh, kind of Puritan community. They're like, ah, oh, we we just hung this woman who's clearly braver than we are. Um, uh, is clearly a you know a, a sincere a virtuous person, and um, it turns her into a martyr. And Quakers in England use her death to get the king to tell the Puritans to knock it off. Any Quakers after this point. They cannot be executed until they're tried by an English court first, not by a colonial court. And it is just – it's no accident that just a decade or so later, um, we it leads to the 1689 Act of Toleration in England, which extends religious toleration for the first time to essentially all Protestants, not the Catholics, but to all Protestants. And it is the action of hundreds of Quakers like Mary Dyer, both in the colonies and England, that essentially – they stare down the state and they win. Sometimes I feel we prioritize politicians or people who've written down ideas or people who did something. So like I normally think of Roger Williams because he wrote down a bunch of things. He also had he established Rhode Island. Like he was a man of action. But I also think of the founding fathers. I think that those are the kind of people who established religious liberty in America the way we think of it today. But it turns out that it's a much more complicated and long story that's been in the making hundreds of years even before the founders were born. Well, and to your point, you know, Roger Williams, he's the one who coins the phrase, a wall of separation between church and state, not Thomas Jefferson. Tom, that, uh, it's a century and a half before Jefferson that Roger Williams coins that concept. So it's a, yeah, a much older story. So just to finish off, I'd like to ask two quick questions. The first one I'd say is, uh, how integral is the idea of religious freedom to the American character today? Because it doesn't always seem like it's a big issue today. It kind of it, it crops up in court cases and it comes up every now and again, but it's nothing like it was back then. Is religious freedom still a huge part of American culture? And the second little follow-up question is, what should libertarians take from Mary Dyer? Mm, great questions. Well, to the first, um, I think the cautionary note I would sound is that we tend to take religious freedom, religious liberty, religious toleration for granted. They're kind of, we, we, we think of them as a birthright. They're enshrined in the constitution. It's not something that has to be uh, renewed. It's just the thing we have and will always exist, but it's actually the opposite. It is a concept um, that it, the, it, it, the, a period when we actually have the kinds of religious liberties that we have in America and most of the world today, it's actually enshrined in the United Nations Charter too, not just in the U.S. Constitution. That is the exception in human history, not the rule. And it's a cultural conceit. And yes, it's powerful in that it's very widespread at this point, but it had to be made. It had to be fashioned. It had to be invented, which also means it can be unfashioned, disinvented, unmade. Um, and so I think the cautionary tale is that it's dangerous when we start taking things for granted. Um, it's also dangerous because uh, they got instinctively in the 17th and 18th century, you know, so the founders and people like Mary Dyer and Roger Williams, et cetera, that this was um, a better alternative to what came before. And what came before this, all of this. Uh, this concept of religious toleration grows out of the wars of religion in the 15 and early 1600s 
uh, which were massively devastating to Europe. Uh, uh, by the end of the wars of religion, a third of the people in Germany are dead as warring Protestant and Catholic armies uh, traipse across the uh, uh, Central Europe for for several decades. Um, it's just utterly devastating. It's the exhaustion with the conflict between religious groups that leads to a kind of grudging acknowledgement of the need for religious toleration. That a society that's pluralist, even if you have to endure people who are different than you, again, toleration is endurance, um, is preferable to a dog-eat-dog religious society marked by religious conflict. That was a hard lesson that took millions of people dying and generations and generations to learn. Um, And it's that was in their consciousness then. I'm not sure it's in our consciousness today that 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 lesson has kind of waned over time. Um, It's uh, also, I think – important to realize that these things are forged in an enemy of the enemy of my enemy is my friend sense that like, I'm going to tolerate you because we're united in that we don't like X third party. So, so like the act of toleration in 1689 in England, we're going to extend religious toleration. You know, we used to literally execute Quakers and other dissenting Protestants. Now we won't. Why? Because we're more worried about Catholics. It's after the Glorious Revolution, after they overthrow, uh, you know, a, a Catholic monarch um, and put in William of Orange, right in 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 uh, in charge in in the in the in the monarchy. Um, so so often, this is this tact gradual tactical process of extending toleration and liberty to, you know, concentric circles emanating from some center. Um, And what's disconcerting to me is that we're seeing that start to work the other way, that the circles of who, the concentric circles of who we extend toleration and freedom to are shrinking bit by bit. We're becoming a more tribal and divided and less pluralist society because we're forgetting these lessons. And these lessons don't just apply to religious liberty. They apply to essentially the entire suite of enlightenment views associated with modern liberalism. Um, so it's not just about religious liberty. It's any kind of individual civil liberty uh, that that the that this 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 process applies to. Um, as for your second question, um, uh, what does was it? What does Mary Dyer' story have to say for libertarians? Yeah, like how should libertarians interpret it? And really, should they read about it more? Yeah, I, I would encourage. You know, I don't think libertarians spend enough time reading pre-founding era um, American you know, political philosophy uh, and uh, American Republicans. You know, like Roger Williams should be just as well read by libertarians as Alexi de Tocqueville or as Thomas Jefferson. Sometimes libertarians privilege, sometimes I feel libertarians, they privilege writing over action. And we like great theorists like John Stuart Mill, who also was a man of action too. I'm not dissing Mill at any point. But Mary didn't, she wrote about two letters that we can look at today. She doesn't leave a giant corpus of work, but her work is her actions, what she did and how she stared down the state. And sometimes I feel libertarians can kind of go a bit too theoretical. Maybe we should push back towards finding those proper heroes who fought against the state. Mm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And plus, you know, she is challenging 
um, a, a culture of authoritarianism on multiple fronts. She's challenging it as a religious dissident. She's challenging it as a woman in a patriarchal society. Uh, she's challenging it as someone who believes in, yeah, individual soul liberty and not kind of a state absolutism. So, like, there are multiple aspects of Dyer that we can be inspired by. Um, and so, yeah, she's underrated as, I mean, she's not a libertarian in the modern sense, but she's someone who contemporary libertarians can be in, should can and should be inspired by, uh, by her example. Thanks, Emil, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Portraits of Liberty is written and hosted by me, Paul Meany, and produced by Landry Ayers. You can also visit libertarianism.org to find more shows like this. I hope to see you next time.